Hello and welcome to Star Cells and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Jeff Zwerink. I'll be your host for the today, and we're going to be looking at AI and just some of the interesting intricacies of how that is being developed. But before we get into that discussion, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our channel, Reasons to Believe, so that you can be notified of our new weekly videos and learn more at reasons.org or by following us on social media at rtb underscore official. Well, I'm looking forward to our show today. We've got a, a PhD in computer science, uh, Dr. Dustin Morley, and we're going to be discussing various AI stuff. Uh, I'm going to throw it over to you, Dustin. Why don't you go ahead and give a little bit of presentation on the discovery you want to talk about? Absolutely. Thanks, Jeff. All right. So, very excited to join the uh, podcast the first time, real privilege. Um, and, and I've got an interesting uh, thing together here from a paper that I saw that's on self-supervised learning. Not really a new, overall, it's not a new idea, but it's a significant step in progress in it. So I think it's interesting to talk about. And a kind of a related concern is what I would call as task decoupling that's shown up in other areas, even if they're not necessarily in the self-supervised learning um, area. So I'll kind of mention those to help set up context because this is, I think this is a good um, summary of kind of what's what new directions are being taken in kind of the modern AI research that we're starting to see. So, so I wanna start with um, an analogy that will help point to some of the reasons why researchers are going this direction. Um, so Jeff, if I remember correctly, you have a few kids yourself, right? I do have a few kids, yes. Yeah, any of them into sports? Most of them are into, in fact, all of them have played sports at various levels. Some have gone higher than others, but all of them are interested. Nice, nice. And I've got a four-year-old myself, so it hasn't started yet, but soon I'm hoping to start him in um, <laughs> soccer or basketball or something. But I'm sure um, you, you noticed that... Um, by the time you were ready to start your kids into sports, you weren't starting with a blank sheet of paper when you were teaching them stuff, right? They had already um, spent years exploring how to move their body, how to manipulate objects with their hands and feet, um, how to talk and communicate, of course, and everything. And so by the time they're learning a sport, they're using all of that stuff they've already learned that was not connected to the sport at all at the time they were learning it. And then it's just a matter of learning the rules of the sport and fine tuning certain techniques of body movements that apply specifically to that sport. And so I think that's a good analogy for what unsupervised learning tries to do um, when AI researchers are going in that direction. You um, just provide a whole bunch of input to an AI system. You don't give it any exact labels of exactly what it's supposed to do with it. Um, you just set things up in such a way that exploration of the data is encouraged. And you do keep in mind that you can always just make things more specific later, which is analogous to just, like, okay, you've done all sorts of exploration and learned ways to move your body. Now we're just going to teach you the rules of basketball or the rules of soccer or football or something. Even, even though we're not going to completely rewrite your knowledge that you've already gained of how to walk and run and get up when you fall down and all that stuff. Um, and that's in contrast to supervised learning where you do pretty much start with a blank sheet of paper for the AI and you label absolutely everything that it's going to look at and tell it exactly what the right answer and the wrong answer is for each piece of data and it learns that way. 
So um, is, is that a pretty clear um, distinction, Jeff, between supervised and unsupervised learning? Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's the, it kind of raises the question in my mind, how does an AI know what it's looking at? I assume in the unsupervised, uh, where with the supervised, there's kind of direction and task, if you will, or a specificity about what's going on. The unsupervised is really the AI just kind of developing correlations, noticing patterns, if you will, but not for any specific purpose. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. And so, and we'll talk about the specific example in the paper that I'm gonna um, bring forward. But yeah, all forms of unsupervised learning, you know, you always have to provide what's called a loss function, right, or a, or a merit function, if you like, something that tells the network how good of a job it's doing, whether it's supervised or unsupervised. That's always true. And so, those loss functions and merit functions for unsupervised learning will be generally some form of how good of a job is it doing at treating different pieces of data differently, basically. Okay. Even though we're not told exactly what to do with it, but you you know you do want different pieces of data to be understood differently or treated differently, basically. So, so if, if I get the, maybe let me throw an analogy and see if that's correct. So if you were to do context of chess, there would be, here are all the pieces, here's how they move, this is, this is why these move this way, this is the value that it all has, and it's all designed to uh, take pieces and ultimately capture the king, whereas an unsupervised learning would be the machine would be, or the AI would be largely learning, oh, here's what the pieces, here's how they move, kind of a, a basic, their functionality, but not necessarily what's the goal or the direction behind it. Yeah, maybe if you don't tell it, give it a concept of winning in it, yeah. but still have some of the, yeah, no, that, that yeah, that, that could be. Um, some With chess, the, the difficulty would be some of the rules on how the pieces move might cross it into being a little bit more supervised than what's typically done with unsupervised okay. learning. So, so well, well, we'll jump in when we see the example of uh, what was done in this paper. I think it'll um, be a lot clearer. So. First, I, want, I do want to talk about just um, task decoupling examples, even though they're not unsupervised learning, just because I think they're related. So one example that I'll mention that um, most people are familiar with to a certain extent is uh, Tesla's full self-driving software. And as a good reference, anyone who's in really interested and in wanting to see some details on how it works is a really great um, YouTube video. Uh, that's They called it Tesla AI Day 2021. It's on YouTube. Um, very uh, informative presentation there by uh, Andre Karpathy, who was you know pretty big name in AI in in general, even before he was at Tesla and is now at OpenAI. But what Tesla actually has is a huge deep learning model, but that model has defined subcomponents that each have a clear cut role, and there is also what's called feature sharing. So like the whole first portion of that model. Um, provides, takes in input data, has a ton of layers and parameters in it, and it provides its data to a few subsequent networks, more than one, and they're all operating on the same thing, but then they all each have their own uh, parameters that, that they do own all to themselves on top of that. They call it the Hydra, right? Because it's like there's the body of the Hydra that they all use, and then each, there's a, you know, different heads of the Hydra that each mm -hmm. have their own parameters, but it's, it's not unsupervised because they do, um, you know, train, they can train all those things at once. They can freeze one part of it and train another part or, you know, train it, you know, some of the parts and not 
Others, they have a lot of built-in flexibility because of the, they've decoupled tasks like a lane prediction from pedestrian detection to all sorts of all the many tasks that they need to do. They've decoupled them all together uh, or from each other. So it's just kind of the idea there, instead of treating driving as this one big idea, it's there's kind of a base knowledge and then a whole bunch of tasks that are all kind of operating independently, or not independently, but separately from one another. So you can, as you mentioned, do something that says, okay, let's make sure we're changing lanes at the right time, which is different than sensing whether it's raining or not. And so those tasks are related but done independently yeah and the relationship the the, the related part comes from that both all of those tasks need um information gleaned from the images on their many cameras and their other sensors right and so yeah so there'll be a bunch of information sharing that is general information gleaned from those pictures that are useful to all of those tasks but then it'll um travel into a um down a bottleneck or a hydra head as they call it for specifically the lane detection task and then down another um another bottleneck for you know another specific task Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth so they have a combination of a bunch of shared um training but then also separate stuff that's separated out by task right and another example that does kind of the same thing um is chat gpt another very (laughs) well-known example especially recently um very similar they have a you know, a huge backbone that's a deep language model trained on text data. Um, there are no labels provided, but I, as far as I would understand supervised and unsupervised learning, this is still actually supervised learning mathematically because what that backbone is trained to do is, you know, it's like given, you know, a, a series of words or sentence or a couple sentences. And given these first few words, it wants to predict the next words that are going to come. So it is actually told exactly what it's supposed to do. Hmm. It's just that out of a matter of convenience, no one had to label it by hand because the data was self-labeled, if you will. Okay. But then similarly to what I um, described with Tesla, they then connect that huge backbone that knows how to complete um, sentences and just basically understands language in, in general. They connect that to different front end deep learning models, which might be like uh, generating captions for images or question answering or essay writing or whatever. Um, And those are all trained on labeled data for each specific task. But again, Mm. they have that task decoupling that gives them the huge versatility that they got that giant backbone that they were able to train on all of the text data. And then they can keep all of the front end tasks somewhat separate from each other, but still leveraging that huge uh, backbone of language modeling data. Gotcha. So, so that's helpful context is now I want to get into, um, the paper that I, um, saw recently still on archive, although I, I fully expect it'll probably show up, um, in a conference or journal at some point. Um, so it's paper is blockwise self-supervised learning at scale. Um, among uh, names on it, Jan LeCun is involved in it. He's a big name in AI, as any other AI researcher will know. Um, and what um, this group did, um, to me, they're, they're, they're pushing the envelope on applying truly unsupervised learning. And basically what they did was um, they demonstrated some success by um, first training a deep neural network, just a deep AI model on 
the ImageNet data set, which that's just a huge data set of images. That's the data set that was used throughout kind of the, the initial deep learning explosion in 2012, 2013, when, um, you know, suddenly deep neural networks became, uh, it became clear that they could do as, as well as they could um, mm -hmm. on a challenging image classification data set. So this was like images of a, like, labeled that are like a dogs or cars or, you know, automobiles or, you know, various different animals or people, stuff like that, just a very large labeled data set. Um, but what this team did is they trained their model on that data set without the labels, just with their unsupervised learning technique, which we'll talk about that in a minute. Then they froze it and just added a very simple linear classifier on top of it. And then they gave it the labels just to see like, okay, if we just freeze this giant network that we've trained with completely unsupervised learning, uh, can we get as good um, performance by keeping that frozen and then only training a very simple linear classifier on top of that as we could um, when we do the traditional thing of give it all the labels from the beginning and train the whole thing from scratch with the network otherwise being exactly the same architecture mm. and they managed to get accuracy um on par with or within about a percent or so of the end-to-end -end training so and so, so presumably the value in this is that labeling is time intensive or data into it's, it's just a lot of human work whereas if you can have the computer or the ai just go and look at or you know process through all the data and get most of that done, then the the supervised part of the training is much less requires less human resource or capital, if you will. And so that's why the unsupervised is better. Is that kind of the 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 goal behind that? Um, well, not necessarily, because um you you have to put the labels in eventually if you're gonna do something specific, and, and that is what they did in this case, but it does give you versatility that maybe you could have provided a different set of labels and hmm. still had similar success, right? So it's more of a versatility. Um, and that's why I said task decoupling earlier while okay. that stuff is related. Maybe you could have given a slightly different set of labels that um, focuses on different things on the image and you might expect it to do similarly well as it does with the original set of labels. Okay, so, so it's more flexibility and yes. you can look at a whole bunch of stuff and have this base level of knowledge that can then be specified for different things later more easily without having to retrain the whole system from scratch. Right, and that's why I gave that analogy about sports in the mm -hmm. beginning, right? It's the same, to me, it's kind of the same deal. Learned all sorts of useful things about how to move and all that, and then you could apply that to any number of different games with different sets of rules, just to add it on top of that. Okay, that makes more sense. Cool, so we'll um, let's talk about how they, did it it's um it's actually not that crazy of an idea so they take um the model which uh, any also I'll, I'll just say that the model is a is a resnet 50 which any ai researcher will know what that means to everyone else it's just a really big model it's got about 27 million parameters in it um and they split that model into four blocks and they try they, they tried it different ways Tra they're training each of those four blocks separately either at the same time or sequentially where they'll train one and then freeze it and then train the next one and freeze it and you know so on and so forth 
And this is all with no labeled data involved. Um, and this Barlow twins loss function that they use to train each of these blocks with unsupervised learning, the idea is basically that given an image, we want each block to output a distinct set of robust features. So let me break that down further. Uh, by distinct, that means that the features are different from each other. And by robust, we mean that the features are um, invariant to image transformations that don't really affect how you would at a high level interpret what it's a picture of, right? So like a picture of a cat, it's still a picture of a cat, regardless of whether you rotate it or you stretch it or you blur it a little bit, or if there's a noise in the image, um, you want what the network is extracting at this point to be robust to all of that kind of stuff. And so if it has a feature that measures catness or you know how much something looks like a face, you want that measure to be more or less unchanged by just the image being a bit blurrier or rotated or scaled a little bit differently. And the way that they enforce that is that they basically double up the images that go through the network, right? So every single image that's sent in, it's sent in as two separate copies that are each um, transformed or augmented in different ways. I mean, and that's like the rotation and blurring or whatever, right? So one might be completely um, completely the original image unperturbed, and the other one might be rotated a little bit, stretched a little bit, blurred a little bit, any combination of those other things. And then um, when they get to the layer that they're trying to train, they take the features that come out of that layer, and, you and you've got a huge um, batch size of images that are coming in at this point, right? So maybe a couple hundred each with two copies that in your, your A's and your B's are split into an you know, A and a B pair. And you assemble the cross-correlation matrix between all of those features, which is, you know, that's a little bit mathematical um, probably for uh, some listeners. It's basically just trying to look at how well the features match up or don't match up with each other between um, each corresponding pair of images. And so when you assemble that, if it's doing a really good job, that matrix will look kind of like an identity matrix. You'll, in other words, um, the same feature for the A and for the B will be very similar to each other, but different features for that A and B will, you know, not really line up. And so when you average how well they line up over all of the different image pairs in the batch, those should be pretty close to zero um, if everything's going well. So basically, I'm not going to um, give like the full uh, math of the loss function, but it's a loss function that drives that cross-correlation matrix towards looking kind of like an identity matrix as much as it can. So, so it wants to make sure that the things in the images that are should be robust against all these transformations. It sees those and it doesn't find other correlations that shouldn't exist in there is effectively what's going on there. It's it's finding the things that should always be there well and it's minimizing how much extraneous noise it finds correlations with. Yeah, right. And so if you just think, look at it as like a toy example, say that the network is only outputting 10 features, which it would, it would be a lot more than 10, but if it's only outputting 
10 features, you would look at that first feature um, and what that is for every single image pair in there. Um, and when you compare that first feature with itself, with each respective image pair, you want it to kind of look the same. You want it to be the mm -hmm. same magnitude, just as strong. But then when you compare feature one with feature two, um, you don't want that to really make sense at all. That want you don't you want that to, to you know to not really right line up. You want you want it, and that's what kind of steers it towards getting ten different features instead of the exact same feature ten different times. Right. So you want it to have a you know again a, a large set of distinct features that are different from each other, and you want them to be robust to being able to look the same even if the image was transformed or uh, blurred in some way. Gotcha. So. That's the idea. And so these are the results they did. They, and they tried a lot of different um, ex, you know, experimental setups here. And this isn't even showing all, they have an appendix where they show all the experiments they tried that didn't work. Um, but this is basically showing that um, the, um, and I know the podcast listeners can't see it, so I'll just uh, try to describe it as best I can. But um, the, there's a baseline performance that shows how you know, the, like a 71% accuracy, which is what you would get with the traditional end-to-end -end training, the labels in there from the beginning, full supervised learning. Um, and then there's just, a, they show basically uh, several different ways of doing the unsupervised learning, whether it's um, sequential, you know, one, one at a time and then frozen and then onto the next one, or whether they just do fully simultaneous training, just in parallel training all four blocks of the giant network with their unsupervised learning all at the same time. And they're in their best case, they do approach basically, you know, they get within a percent of the accuracy of the traditional end to end mm. method, which that's basically their goal. So it's a, it's a really interesting um, success. I'm not sure if um, to what extent that level of success has been um, reached in any prior work, but right. Tells you that they basically got there, although it's also interesting mm -hmm. that it almost looks like it's asymptot, you know, it asymptotically approaches that. Like it doesn't look like you could ever do better than providing mm. the labels from scratch, but you could get pretty much as good performance, but not better. So so it sounds like they've they've tried many different approaches to see can we get up close to there uh or you know, replicate the the uh accuracy of the the full training approach every or the supervised training approach is it is is there any analysis of do the number of different ways impact i mean is that is that method going to be good every time or did that happen to be the one that worked this time or is there any analysis of that that you're aware of um well so yeah so these different things that they tried with varying performance um yeah it's not it's not random, right? So they um, they generally saw that the simultaneous simultaneously training all the blocks did much better than mm. training one block at a time and freezing it, you know, freezing the ones that are already trained. So they 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 pretty clearly observed that trend. But okay. in terms of predicting for different tasks, how well it's going to do um, at this point, it's probably still the case that unsupervised learning is notoriously difficult to to train. So they got some insights here that doing this uh, simultaneous blockwise training approach might, um, you know, might be the most promising way to tackle it. But yeah, right. I mean, until more people try it on completely different 
tasks, I guess it somewhat remains to be seen how well it can generalize. But, but I think that it's pretty convincingly shown here that having multiple more blocks is better and training them all at the same time is better mm -hmm. than any of the alternatives. That's the trend that they have here. Okay. Okay. So this, this seems like very promising. I don't want to say introductory, but a, the first time we're using unsupervised learning, they've been able to approach the efficiency or the, the accuracy of the supervised learning, but it still needs to be verified how robust this is across different tasks or something, but it's, it's very promising. And then it looks like we've got this other way of doing it that doesn't require training the whole model with all the labeled data from scratch. Right. And so um, we'll segue that into kind of just a couple discussion points before I conclude. So this is another um, figure they had in the paper, which I think it's really interesting that they included this. So um, I'll, uh, I'll you know, just describe it for the um, podcast listeners that don't have the slide, but basically um, they're showing how their method stacks up both in terms of um, perform demonstrated performance on a large data set, but then they've got this arrow going across the figure um, highlighting what they call biological plausibility, which as far as I can tell is subjective, but I think it's you know, it's probably more or less right the way they ranked it, but it's it's clearly trying to make their the point that they've, you know, what they did in this paper is, you know, kind of in the, the sweet spot of one of the most biologically plausible learning methods, meaning that you know they would say that it's plausible that the human brain might be doing something very similar to this, while okay. also having a large scale data set performance. Whereas you know they've got other methods that you know might do have done better on a data set like the supervised learning, but it's not really plausible at all that that's what the what a human brain is doing, for example. So they're looking at that, which to me, that's an interesting discussion point as to, you know, what are, you know, what are we really trying to accomplish with uh, stuff like this, right? Because there's mm. there's more motivating this, I think, than just the um, the versatility benefits, which are which are real. The versatility benefits of being able to do stuff um, like this with training. You know, there are real practical things that that's helpful towards. But right. Um, so I usually like to bring up this. Um, you know, when when I took a graduate level artificial intelligence, the textbook that we used had a, this. What I thought was this really helpful way of defining artificial intelligence, where they basically say, well, there are four different possible academic definitions, and you can visualize them as corners of a square, um, basically defined by whether you're defining it based on how the system thinks versus how it acts and whether it's doing that like a human or whether it's just doing it rationally, regardless of whether it's similar to a human or not. And when you're purely in the realm of um, practical AI, it pretty much always the preferred definition is the act rationally definition, right? You okay. are building this system to accomplish some task. We want it to do a really good job and whether it does it the same way a human would or whatever um it's not really all that important all that mat what matters most is that it does a good job and makes rational decisions of what it's trying to do um but there's a lot of academic interests and and including i would say like you know the search for like an artificial general intelligence that you know those kinds of work tend to 
go a little bit more on those uh the humanly side of the figure rather than the rationally side of the figure where they're trying you know pe people want to see can we make an ai system learn the same way that a human does and act exactly the same way as a human does can we pass the turing test right all of mm -hmm. those um types of questions um i just mentioned for fun that the the fourth option of the square that um think rationally option that just fell out of favor a long time ago that basically died with godel's <laughs> incompleteness <laughs> theorem that was like the approach of can we have computers always think in terms of mathematical proofs and propositions all the time and it, right. it was even even before we had um you know electronics everywhere it was obvious that that was not gonna get anywhere but the other definitions are all active so so why do i bring this up i bring this up because there's a little bit of a tension between um practical ai and the academic search for trying to make it act like a human, right? And I think you even see that in this work, that the fact that, okay, yeah, this was really cool that they could do this, but also the performance wasn't as good as when you just give it all the labels and do supervised learning from scratch. So if you want an image classifier and you want it to work really well, that's still what you should do, mm -hmm. right? So there's a little bit of a, of a tension there. So, and so this is basically how I'm going to um, wrap up. We could, um, if you, you know, we could see if you have any more questions about this. But you know, so although the technique, you know, it, it is going to be useful in some practical context, especially for um, what's called clustering, right? So if you have a bunch of data and you know that, like, oh, these pieces of data are clearly different from these pieces of data, I can't really put my finger on how I would define it. Mm -hmm. um, why not let an AI system define it because it might come up with a classification system that's more internally consistent than a human trying to do it subjectively, right? So maybe mm -hmm. this would be something like trying to have a, establish a system that grades severity of a disease or uh, Jeff, maybe even in astrophysics classifying types of stars or, mm -hmm. or uh, solar systems or stuff like that. You know, so there's lots of clustering types of problems where unsupervised learning can you know show a lot of promise um but if you wanted to imagine using it for um purely the um the kind of the task decoupling or versatility benefit if you imagine something like uh you know you've got some medical imaging medium and there's multiple different diagnoses or measurements that could be made from that you know can we use this technique to reuse features obtained from the unsupervised learning and um but then you know kind of like the tesla chat gpt examples train different front end models on top of it to go to different tasks and um you could but it, but the awkward thing is that why would you not do like tesla does and sometimes train the whole thing from scratch with the with the labels put in for all those different tasks right mm -hmm. in other words there's no practical reason to freeze the unsupervised portion when the labels show up or anything yeah. like that so that that's kind of the so that, that's kind of just a, it's a light tension there i don't mean that in any negative way mm -hmm. at all though because i think it's all really cool stuff but it's an interesting um thing for people to be aware of that you know in some of this research there is a slight tension between you know are we trying to make the ai behave like a human or mimic the human brain exactly or as closely as we can, or are we just trying to make really useful systems that accomplish tasks for us better than we can ourselves? So yeah, that that's a really interesting question as I'm just sitting there, you know, thinking about 
you know, how, how that plays out that I look at the way, at least I learn, and I'm assuming the way most people learn is that um, there's some very t times where I'm just digging into something very specific and trying to learn this task. But almost in every one of those instances, there's this whole other body of knowledge I'm drawing upon to understand what's going on, whether it's reading something and I've got other references or I've seen things in a movie and or whether it's just things that I've thought randomly about, uh, you know, how dogs walk or whatever it is. There's this whole slew of knowledge that kind of comes in um, that it seems like this unsupervised learning has is trying to get at that aspect of human learning, if you will. Uh, you know, I find it interesting, your comment that that seemed to asymptotically approach the supervised learning, which is interesting. I, I'm not sure what the what the implications of that. And I, I guess I'll ask, you know, I'll throw that question to you. What do you think the implications of that are? <clears throat> but I also am just seeing that there's this distinction between can we make an AI do a task the way we want it to? But yet we tend to seem to, once it does the task, we tend to start thinking it's doing it like humans are. I mean, mm -hmm. even with chat GPT, it looks like it's writing an essay, but it's not writing an essay in the way I'm writing an essay. It's doing it very differently, but yet it's doing the same task. So I guess my question is, what do, what is your assessment of the, why does the unsupervised never seem to match the supervised? And how do we help people see the distinction between an AI that's doing a task as opposed to we do a task in a human way? Okay, well, for, so for that first question about um, the unsupervised not matching the supervised, uh, I think the answer is very simple. It's math, right? So when you tell it exactly what you want it to do, it's going to turn, you know, all these models, it's, it's like they have a million different knobs that can be turned, right, in mm -hmm. order to fine-tune the performance and so if you let it if, if you tell it turn all the knobs to achieve this exact output that I'm giving you and then you're gonna and if your end goal is in fact for it to match up with those labels then yes telling it those labels and doing a, a proper loss function based on that is always going to be mm -hmm. the way that gives you the best performance because you literally trained it to do that exactly right right Whereas unsupervised, when you're unsupervised, um, you're 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 not letting it do that to the same extent. You're just letting it find useful ways to partition the data, and then maybe at the very end you try to um, say, oh, you know, maybe you can try to use this for this task over here, but don't really don't rewrite yourself from scratch. Just keep most of it this the same, but, <laughs> right? But now, I, I do think that if you just didn't freeze the unsupervised portion, then, you know, it would do just as well as the as when you do the labels from scratch, right? As long as you don't freeze uh, okay. it when you introduce the labels, then it should be able to get there. But then on the flip side, there's no, you know, there's not that much reason to do that. You might save yourself a little bit of training time, but it's going to a certain extent undo what it did during all the time you spent letting it do the unsupervised learning because it's going to start to rework, you know, turn all of those oh. knobs um, in order to best meet the labels instead. So it, it kind of makes the unsupervised learning extraneous if you just retrain on the on the labeled data, if you will, or with with the, yeah. the supervised with a directed 
directed task, if you will. Yeah, right. Your best case is that it maybe saves you a lot of time if you just, um, you know, you did the unsupervised learning one time, like on some imaging medium, and you just always use that as your initialization for a network. So you don't have to start from scratch. And then maybe the training time is a lot less. Maybe right. instead of taking a week to train something, it only takes a day or something mm -hmm. like that. If it's starting from that point, that's already got a useful, a lot of useful stuff um, being output from the network. But, but, but yeah, you know, to a certain extent, it will turn all those knobs specifically to match the labels instead. It'll, if you don't, if you don't um, explicitly prevent it from doing that. Right. I, I don't know, this may be an unfair question, but does that have implications for how we go about learning ourselves? So, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking uh, in terms of if we, we, we could hone our educational system so that it teaches to do this specific task or get to college or get this kind of degree, um, we might be, I, I could see a scenario where if we're not careful, we could tune for an outcome that may not be as general as we need it if we're, if we're not careful. Do you get the nature of the question there? Yeah, no, I do. And I think, you know, I, I generally hear from, um, educators or people who have a very high view of education that um, they, you know, they have a high priority on education being more uh, general and, you know, um, having people learn how to think critically and everything and not so much just, you know, full-blown industrial, you know, answer this question exactly this way or learn how to do this task. And, you know, and maybe that's a helpful way to think about how AI would best be integrated into society, right? Because, you know, we have AI systems now that can um, master uh, whenever we have a direct labeling of like, yep, this is the input, this is the output, we'll set up an AI system to do that and keep continue to educate people to have the critical thinking skills mm -hmm. to manage those AI systems and make sure they're basically behaving in uh, the way that we expect them to, right? That's almost like a bifurcation there to me of like, uh, you know, this is what AI would be really good at. And this is what is the what type of tasks are best left to humans, mm -hmm. right? You can take it that way, too. And so in some sense, that's kind of like using a calculator. It's not yeah, that humans exactly. can't figure out how to do X, Y, or Z. But we know two times whatever is is that we just, if we can free that calc, or if we can do that calculation quickly, so that we can move on to something else that may be more important, or that an AI couldn't do, we could use the AIs to free up human minds to do other things. Is uh, yeah, yeah right. Let, let the machines multiply seven digit numbers for us. Right. right. <laughs> Well, very good. That is pretty fascinating. Any final thoughts or is there any, any closing comments on that? I, I found this very interesting, your discussion today. Uh, no, I think it pretty much covered everything. Real interested to hear um, what discovery you're going to bring up. Well, very good. I, you know, kind of uh, to set the stage a little bit, you know, you're talking about these AIs that are, yeah, and I don't want to say task oriented, but more in that artificial narrow intelligence category of how do we drive a car? How do we do that um, the discovery I'm talking about is it's a paper uh, presented at a, a conference on artificial intelligence about the off switch game. And this is in the context, not of narrow intelligence, but where we start getting uh, AIs that are better at thinking or, or have general intelligence and an intelligence beyond what we have, at least in some capacity. And so the 
kind of dates back to a comment that Alan Turing made. I think it was back in the 50s, and I'll, or I think it was 1951 in a radio address. It says, if a machine can think, it might think more intelligently than we do. And then where should we be? Even if we could keep the machines in a subservient position, for instance, by turning off the power at strategic moments, we should as a species feel greatly humbled. This new danger is certainly something which can give us anxiety. And so they're exploring that idea of could we keep them in a subservient position by turning them on and off. And so the question was uh, posed in this paper that people have been thinking about, can we build a machine that may be more rational or think faster, better, stronger than us, but still have an on-off switch that the AI would not disable so that we could actually still use it? And they were just kind of exploring that realm of, uh, you know, given that it can think rationally, it could. If does it have any incentive to keep the off switch enabled so that we can turn it on and off? And so they're looking for what scenarios where is there an incentive for that agent, the robot, to not switch the on or to not disable the on off switch? And it's just kind of interesting because you know there there's this almost juxtaposition in my mind of where we're assuming they're rational, intelligent, or whatever that means, and yet we're still wanting to control them, or if they genuinely are thinking better than us, why would we not want to listen to what that has to say? We're trying to keep them almost constrained to our level of thinking, which is an interesting scenario, but really what they're getting, the the main idea behind this is we want to create artificial intelligences and as much as possible keep their goals in line with our goals and so they're i think they're really wrestling with the question where their goals are not aligned with our goals can we have some way to direct them to or keep them in that vein and so they just did you know did some mathematical work to try and formalize is are there scenarios where the robot, even though it has more knowledge, more intelligence, it's it has incentive to keep the on-off switch in place. And you know what they were able to show is that even if the AI has no or is indifferent about whether it it stays on or off, and I, I find it interesting they use a language about dying or whatever. It's like this: there's this very anthropomorphic language that's being used there. Uh, which I think is somewhat dangerous, but uh, you know, I'll just make that passing comment. Um, in, in almost any way the AI is going to evaluate things, its function is, can it accomplish its goal? And on almost every instance, it's going to be incentivized to keep to disable the switch that turns it off because that will prevent it from doing its goal. And so those are, that's kind of the parameters of what they're thinking there. And what they found in their analysis is that there is a scenario where as humans behave rationally, uh, the more rationally they behave, and if there is uncertainty in the objective that the AI is supposed to achieve, then there's a scenario where, or the, then you end up in a situation, and you can mathematically show that the AI is has incentive to keep the off switch enabled because there's uncertainty and the human's input is valuable about what's going on. So it's uh, it's lack of certainty about how well it can accomplish the goal allows the human's voice to 
weigh in on whether things are good or bad, and that provides the incentive to keep the off switch enabled. <clears throat> but they also, you know, so that, that was the robust conclusion they came to. But what they found in there is they realized now there's this tension that exists because the less certain or the more uncertainty there, there is in the objective, the less effective the AI will be in accomplishing the objective. And I just thought that was kind of an interesting result um, for a number of reasons. One is that, you know, just in this juxtaposition of this artificial superintelligence, which I am very skeptical that that even is even possible, but, let, you know, just let's continue to play in that realm for now. That in order to have a system that accomplishes goals and has some sort of control over it, we have to impose, or there are trade-offs where to optimize one remains, remains means that some other aspect that we want is suboptimal. If we want control, we have to suboptimize or make the effectiveness suboptimal. If we want the optimal output or the optimal performance, we need to sub-optimize our ability to control. And so there are these competing interests. And what I find interesting about that is that very often there are there are these trade-offs and we see this in, in human designs all the time. Uh, you know, you think about building a car. If I want it to be very fast, I can make it go very fast. If I now want it to be very fast and very fuel efficient, I have to start making some changes and I can often do that. But if I wanted to make it very fast and fuel efficient and safe, the more things I start wanting in there, I just have to, If I, the, the safer I make it is going to trade on either the fuel efficiency or the how fast it can go. Because to make it safer, you need to use stronger materials or heavier materials. And, and it just, you're going to intentionally sub-optimize things. Apologetically, that that reminds me of a lot of arguments that people give for, oh, the human body isn't well designed because it's got the uh, light sensitive devices in the back of the eye, or the pelvis isn't designed for this or that. And it's often looking at just one aspect instead of the entire range of what humans have to be able to do. And, you know, here we are in a system or where we're thinking about a system that doesn't even exist yet. And as we start putting multiple features in there, we realize we have to have this same thing where we decrease the optimal value in one arena to make sure that everything is met well. Mm. And so that to me has this kind of interesting apologetic uh, link to it. And, you know, just the, one of the things the paper concludes is that, you know, there is this environment or scenario where the robot with the artificial intelligence is willing to keep the off switch enabled because the, the human input is valuable because of its uncertainty and its objective. But if you now start making an arena where there are multiple ways for the AI to evaluate whether that input is valuable, it may very well be that the AI decides, turn off the switch, investigate what it is so that it can know and then make its decision. And so effect, it, it, this simple scenario may not actually work given the complexities of where this intelligence, we would want to employ it anyway. And so it just kind of raising 
these questions of even bypassing the entire idea of is it possible to make a general intelligence or a super intelligence that a lot of the things even as we're thinking about can this be done we're seeing a lot of or i'm seeing a lot of parallels between arguments made against our humans well designed well we see these suboptimal systems things that aren't working well and we say oh that means a creator can't do it instead of asking the question do we understand the whole system and understand why each of these have the the features they do and what where i've where i've seen investigations of that where it's looking at more things than one or looking at the system as a whole we find that lo and behold what appeared to be a bad design ends up being a very good design it just may not always be used or it may be for an extreme circumstance or when you're sick or something like that and so I just find it interesting that as we're delving into this question of general and super intelligence, we're finding evidence that these answers we're giving for our humans designed, we're finding evidence that those are the right way to think about them because we're encountering those same sorts of problems as we're thinking about how do we design intelligent systems. Yeah, I've definitely been bit by unknown trade-offs many times as a software engineer. <laughs> Right. Oh, what's that doing there? Let me rip that out. Oh, that's why that was there. Okay. <laughs> yes, trade-offs are everywhere. It's unavoidable. But Well, and it's, um, it's good that you find it early rather than, oh, I can take that out. And three years later, I'm like, oh, that's what it was. And I forgot yeah. about it. Well, so. sometimes that's happened too. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So my, my question right off the bat, though, with that um, uh, interesting paper, though, is I don't, it's not clear to me why it's assumed that the AI would even know that the off switch exists. Right, like certainly, if you any way you can imagine a robot working now with current technology, obviously, if you go hundreds of years into the future, things will just look completely different, and then who knows? But mm -hmm. you know, it'll be a software program running in an operating system, right? So the operating system has commands to just force kill a program, and the program itself doesn't have any knowledge that that even exists right so like what um stops someone from effectively doing a control alt delete if it's so running on windows for example and end <laughs> task right and it's and, it, and then it's gone right or even even if it's a physical power button why would it even know what that button is or what it does i guess is the assumption that if it, it this is a kind of robot that learns all the time while it's out there and so maybe it at some point sees other robots that have been um, shut off through the button and so that it knows to protect its own power button or or is it something where you know or the software equivalent of it somehow learns that sometimes humans do the the uh, control alt delete trick on some of its robot buddies mm -hmm. and then it um, writes itself a script that'll immediately fire itself back up if it ever gets ended I mean <laughs> but it's, it's hard to imagine why it would even necessarily know um, that the off switch exists do, do you understand what I'm saying or what no, it, I appreciate the comments because that was kind of one of my thoughts in there is that we're assuming that there's a a mental or an, an intelligence task that can dictate that. But in any sort of AI we're talking about, that all runs in a box on a desktop. I mean, you can do all you want, even if the AI essentially has its own its own OS and runs everything. 
I could still unplug it from the wall and there's absolutely nothing it can do about that. And so yeah, the off switch is external to the AI program itself. Yeah. So I think what the, the context of this is where we're building robots that are able to move, supply their own power, gener or generate or connect to their own power. It's, it's a far step beyond even just can we create a system that seems to have an intelligence but is confined to a box it's there's other technological innovations that allow this to be an embodied you know it, it can move around it's got control of its environment it can control virtually everything in its system type thing this is not just you know take the AI we have, or I don't even know that the AI we have would ever transfer into a general intelligence, but you know something like like Hal on uh, on uh, oh if I forget it in Space Odyssey, where it's effectively an inanimate object that can control certain things in its environment, but it has no control over a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So i i think your question or your your observation is a really good one that this assumes a whole almost a whole world view of how this is going to play out as opposed yeah, to yeah. what what what's likely going to happen even 20 30 50 years down in the future in, in some of the optimistic scales and even then we could probably always design it in an off switch that is external to the AI system such that it doesn't know anything about it. So just to, you know, set anybody of the fears at ease as whether this might happen anytime <laughs> soon. So, um, yeah, yeah. And, um, apart from that, the, the uncertainty, um, question is a good one too, because that has long been, um, an area of study just for even, even apart from that off switch question, but uncertainty has long been a, um, a question in the field of, AI and um, machine learning, you know, that uncertainty can be good sometimes, but figuring out how to harness it correctly is just mm. really difficult. And it intersects with um, some problems that show up with how humans tend to use systems as well, right? Because when humans get used to an AI system just working, they want it to work all the time. They don't want it to, you know, fail 1%. When, when that 1% mm -hmm. of the time fails, like, like if it's a doctor using a, you know, a medical device or something, and, you know, that 1% you know, oddball case where it doesn't understand what anatomy it's looking at and it's asking the doctor to intervene and, you know, label something himself or something like that, they get frustrated. They, they, get, they, yeah. they, they don't, they don't like it. And they, and some, and, you know, sometimes they even like half, you know, to a certain extent, they even forget how to do it the old fashion way right. when they when they go so long in between having to do it so that's a that's a you know whole nother tension between human ai interactions and the mm -hmm. the concept of ai having uncertainty plays into that as well because if you really wanted to have everything be as safe as possible you know you want a transparent level of uncertainty in the ai and having its whenever it's making a prediction of something, have its confidence level, you know, transparently out there. And ideally mm. the humans that are in the room are paying attention to that and going, oh, wait a minute. Hey, the AI is only 51% confident in this one. It's usually 95 plus percent confident. Maybe we should be careful in this case, right. you know, but, but there's a human nature problem there where we tend to not really want to do that, right? We, we tend to just want to say like, yeah, if it's letting me through it, it's probably fine, you know, but... <laughs> Well, it's funny because, you know, I just, I was thinking about that in terms of the way humans live. Uh, you know, one thing I found fascinating just from a, in a Christian worldview or in, in my understanding of scripture 
is I have great confidence that Christianity is true and that God exists, but there's an uncertainty about that. I mean, there it's almost like there's a built-in uncertainty that, uh, you know, I, I, I have to make a decision on how I'm going to live based on a preponderance of data, not a compelling, there's no other way to look at this type type scenario. And I look at that in terms of, you know, just how I interact with my kids. I mean, you were talking about teaching sports and stuff, but I have noticed, especially as my kids are younger, they don't need dad to have a lot of uncertainty. They need to be confident that they can rely on dad. Now, I need to make sure that as they grow up, they recognize I'm not as uh, uh, omnipotent or omniscient as they thought I was. But, you know, there's a time where, you know, we, how confident or we derive our ability to function from other people being sure of what's going on. And so there is this odd scenario where wanting the, or I think, I think you're right. We need to have the AI be very transparent in what it's doing. And at the same time, we, as humans intuitively know how to project confidence when we need confidence, how to express reservations when it's appropriate. There's this almost bifurcation of how we need the AI to behave and yet how we have to behave as humans. Yeah, right. I mean, humans aren't always doing a very good job of transparency, even aside from AI, let alone with AI in, in, in the mix, right? But you know, that's it's all connected, I believe, to just different effects of our you know, sin nature and everything that it's just a not that's one of those natural negative tendencies that we tend to have, you know, wanting to project false confidence all the time in all these different areas. Do you think it is possible? I mean, let, let's assume that you get some sort of general intelligence. I, you know, again, I don't even know what exactly that's entailed, but let's assume that. Is there any reason to think that that general level of intelligence won't come with that commensurate uh, projecting more confidence than is there because that's going to maximize the utility function? Uh, is there any reason to think that the AI would be as transparent as we expect it to be or as we need it to be? Um, to a certain extent, I would say it all AI systems already do that, right? Unless we explicitly design them to do otherwise, right? But um, you know, generally the way AI systems work, there is some kind of confidence measure that is output along with whatever its prediction is. And so, you know, if it's in within a software program, whatever you expose, you can, you can choose to expose that confidence, um, metric to the user, and then the user can decide if they want to do anything with it. But yeah, I mean, it, but yeah, it, um, that's, that's one side of the other side of it is that, you know, is it going to just be blazingly wrong and say that it's 99% confident and it's just dead wrong. And that will, yeah, that will happen sometime just like it happens with us. Right. And so, yeah, if, if that's what you mean, then, then yeah, that's going to happen because, you know, perfection doesn't really seem to exist. Right. Like we want it. We, you know, we all, there's only really, really good statistical performance, but not perfection. And we have a hard time we seem to have a hard time as humans, I think, dealing with things that are very close to perfect, but not quite perfect. And I think it is almost similar, like the example you used with your your kids, you know, and they're little, especially wanting to think that you're perfect and then trying to deal with 
you know, they start to learn like, well, maybe dad's only 98% perfect. How do I find, how do I deal with that other 2% or whatever? Right, right. right. It's kind of, that's exactly how it is with the AI systems. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your conversation today, Dustin. This, is, this has been fun. And, you know, one of the things that I do find is that as we're investigating AI, it really does give us a lot of insight into who we are as people and how we interact with God. But thank you for joining us today, Star Cells and God. Uh, join the discussion below in the comments below. Remember to like this video, subscribe for more content. New episodes of Star Cells and God release each Wednesday and are available here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Be sure to share this video with a friend. And remember, the more we learn about science, the more we have reasons to believe.